do we exist? Were we created with a purpose or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. Today is finally the day, Q&A day. Um, It's a little weird because this month, Friday is like a week before the month ends. I think the month ends next Thursday. So we get a whole extra week at the end of the month after the Q&A to let it sink in before a new month before a new month begins and takes over our life. Uh, but anyway, a number of you sent in questions. Very excited to get to those. Uh, we got a lot of interesting stuff here. Everything from somebody potentially leaving the show as a listener, which I'm going to address. Uh, we have morality. We have slavery. We have, of course, original sin and sin nature. So we get a number of things to cover here. Very excited. And in addition to that, we have a ton of new stuff coming up. We have... Uh, we have Instagram, we have Twitter, TikTok, all kinds of stuff coming in the next like couple weeks. Uh, that's all ready to go. Super pumped for that. Uh, next week, next Tuesday at 5 p.m., we'll be releasing an interview with an ex-psychic. So somebody who was a former psychic and is now a Christian. So actually, if you have a question before Tuesday, you have to send it before Tuesday morning, but if you have a question on anything psychic related, um, you can send it to information at apologetics.org and I will ask... I will ask her your question and she'll answer, but you have to get it in before Tuesday morning by Tuesday at like 9 or 10 a.m. So send that in if you have it. But otherwise, of course, you can send your questions for the next Q&A, any question you have. And the Q&A is a monthly thing, so it's always on the last Friday of the month as of now. So, ton of new stuff coming up. Super pumped for that. Don't forget to hit follow wherever you're listening so you don't miss any of it. Uh, So follow the show. And with that being said, let's get into these Uh, Let's get into these questions. There's some good ones here. So let's start with the first one. And the first one is on uh, sin nature or the original sin topic. I'll link the episodes I did in the description below. I think I did two and a half episodes total. I'd consider one of them half. Uh, But I'll link those in there. So check them out if you haven't so that you know my position on original sin and original guilt. Of course, I don't hold that position. I don't believe that Adam's guilt is transmitted to us. So check out those episodes if you haven't. But here's the first one. He says, first off, I really appreciate the episode on He Gets Us. Very enlightening. Um, My reason for writing is regarding the infant damnation episodes. I'll try and do this as as succinctly, as succinct, how do you say it, as possible. Uh, So the first thing to distinguish is sinful nature versus God's nature, i.e. Holy Spirit. We are born with a sinful nature. God, by his grace and volition, rebirths those whom he chooses. Uh, The reborn are given a new nature, Holy Spirit, through which they choose to believe. The sinful nature, which we inherit, is opposed to God and will not choose him. Uh, Jonathan Edwards teases us out in the freedom of the will. The will is dependent on the nature of the man. Sinful nature versus God's nature. Uh, Children are... Well, let me pause here, actually, before I get to the next part. Um, First of all, thank you for your question, and thank you for for sending a well-thought-out argument. I think you've sent in a question before, so that's awesome. Um, But but thank you for thinking this out and typing it. I I love when people do that, because it gives me an opportunity to expand on my view more as well. Um, So in the, the first paragraph here, the main disagreement I would have is the idea that we inherit a sin nature. I believe that my nature is sinful, 
but I believe it's sinful because I have sinned rather than um, I've sinned because my nature is sinful. So I agree with most of what you said in this first paragraph. The difference would be I don't believe I'm sinful for inheriting Adam's guilt. I do believe uh, that the original sin, Adam's original sin, has affected things. I think it does uh, cause us to be born with a strong inclination towards sin. In fact, I'd go as far as to say we are born um, and we are necessarily going to sin. So I, I agree with most of what you said here, but the difference is I, that part which, where you said the sinful nature which we inherit, that's where I disagree. I don't believe we inherit it. Uh, of course, Jonathan Edwards does. He is a he. He was a Calvinist, awesome preacher, by the way, one of the greatest preachers in history. And actually, he wasn't very enthusiastic. He would pretty much stand there behind a podium and just read with his head down. Um, interestingly enough, but still, one of the great greatest preachers of all time. But I disagree because I'm not a Calvinist. Um, I I do believe that my nature is sin, and I am in desperate need of a Savior, who I've been saved by. And when I put my faith in Christ. I am reborn, Um, and of course, I'm being made, crafted into the image of his son, and one day I'll be glorified in heaven, but that's my disagreement so far, is that word inherit. Uh, And then you went on and said, children are no different. God chooses to save those whom he wills uh, by his grace. He knows whom whom his are. Mercy is his to show to whom he chooses. He is sovereign. Um, Free will is the origin of sin. Sin at its core is anything that opposes God's will. A being with the freedom of volition will inevitably choose their own way at some point, thereby sinning. Uh, Now, let me respond to this real quick, too, before we continue. Um, So this is where, again, I would build off that last thing, and I would disagree where you said children are no different. I believe that children eventually will sin when they understand what good and evil is, Um, but they don't have the ability to sin as children or infants or unborn because they don't understand good and evil. We see that in Deuteronomy 139 and a number of other places in the Old Testament, even including the passage on the virgin birth uh, in Isaiah 714. My wife and I were just talking about that the other day. Uh, Actually, I I, I should probably pull that up real quick, but let me go to Isaiah 7 because my main point here is that children are not capable of sinning because they don't know good from evil. And if they don't sin, uh, which... The Calvinist and the Roman Catholic would partially agree with, they would distinguish between personal sin and original sin, and they would say, well, a child or a baby can't personally sin yet, but they're guilty of original sin. Well, because I don't believe that Adam's guilt is transmitted to us, I don't believe there's a verse for it or a concept for it in scripture, um, I would disagree on the child portion here, but this is Isaiah 7, uh, let's go down to 714. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating, listen to this, he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid laced, will be laid waste. It's not laced with anything. It'll be laid waste. Um, So, of course, you see a double fulfillment here of what's going on in Israel, but also the virgin birth. This is where we get one of the main prophecies in the Old Testament about the virgin birth. And as you see, it says, before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. 
So children don't understand the concept of morality. Uh, They don't understand what it means to offend God and to truly morally do wrong. Uh, so that's where I would agree, uh, disagree on that. I'll also link my episode on Romans 9 in the description um, where I disagree with the common Calvinist view on Romans 9 that God uh, says, I'll save whomever I want to save, and uh, in, in, that's in regard to predestination. I don't believe that. I believe that in Romans 9, when God says, I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy, I think we have it completely backwards. I think it seems he's actually talking to the Jews about the Gentiles because the Jews at that period are saying, well, we're God's chosen people. We were given this, 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 and this. Who are they to come in here all of a sudden? And God's reminding them, I'll show mercy to whoever I want. And right now I'm handing my ministry to the Gentiles. So I'll link that in the description. I think that's often viewed backwards. Um, also, free will is the origin of sin. I agree with that, but I think that also cal- contradicts the Calvinist's uh, theological framework. Either God is totally, um, in a certain sense, sovereign and decrees everything, or he doesn't. It can't be both. Either he decrees everything or he doesn't. Because if you're going to say sovereignty means that God decrees everything, we can't just insert he decrees everything except this, 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 and this. Um, he either decrees everything or he doesn't. Uh, and so in my view... God created free creatures who willingly sinned, brought sin into the world, which affected uh, many things. And now uh, we also sin, but we have the freedom, uh, freedom of the will. And freedom is always constrained by something. Okay, so freedom doesn't mean I can just go fly in the air. Uh, freedom for a fish doesn't mean they can just get out of water and they'll be totally fine. Freedom always is within cons- uh, constructs. Um, there's there's always limits to what freedom is and isn't. Uh, you went on and said regarding Christ, Mary was the human vessel that God chose to carry the human incarnation. Had Joseph been his father, his nature would have been sinful due to inheriting a sinful nature from his parents. A woman had to carry the baby because naturally men uh, cannot. So I agree with you that men cannot carry a baby. Believe it or not, that's controversial today. (laughs) Um, But as far as the rest of it, I don't believe that Jesus was created as an embryo and then just placed inside of Mary. I believe that Scripture teaches that he is truly human. In other words, that he does come from the seed of Mary, or from the egg of Mary, rather. Um, So the seed does come from the Holy Spirit, but the egg is from Mary. And so this is actually, I think, one of the primary issues with the view of original sin and original guilt. Is there, there's, I've never heard a sufficient way around the issue of, well, how did Jesus avoid original guilt? I mean, that's the common answer is, well, the seed came from God. Well, are you suggesting that only men are sinful and that women aren't sinful? The Catholic Church immediately saw an issue with this, and that's why they came up with the, the, the doctrine and the concept of Mary being sinless. They realized, like, wait a minute, if Mary has original sin and Jesus came from Mary, then that means Jesus has original sin. So we need to posit that Mary was sinless, and that's where the Immaculate Conception came from. So they saw an issue with this and tried to be consistent, uh, though they did it by making up doctrine, essentially, in my view. But that is a real issue. And there's, I've never heard a, a reasonable answer as to how Jesus would avoid original sin being born of a woman. Because you either get Jesus was just placed in the woman, and at that point, well, he's not truly human. 
Um, you, I, I've even heard um, views presented by R.C. Sproul, who I respect, and a number of others, where it's like, well, God crafts the uh, human being in the womb, and so, and so he could craft Jesus in his humanity in a way that, well, what do you have now? Now you have God crafting every human being and knitting sin into their existence, into the, the very fibers of their being. You have God knitting guilt into people. And so I actually think this is one of the biggest issues that side-skirted a lot is Jesus would have to be born with original sin if he's truly human. Um, Hebrews 2.17 says he is like us in every way. It doesn't say he's like us in every way, except he has a totally different nature. It says he's like us in every way. And if you don't hold the the view of original sin slash original guilt, then this doesn't present any issues with that. And you can, uh, you can interpret that passage naturally rather than having to read something into it. And then you went on and said, ultimately, it's an open-handed issue, but I do find it uncomfortable how strongly people fight for free will. Uh, the demand for free will in its essence is rebellion. Um, now, I would agree if what you meant by open-handed, um, I do agree that we would probably be in agreement that we're both sinners in need of a savior. So this is not an issue that people should divide over. We still conclude at the same place. Uh, the disagreement is on how we get there. When did you become a sinner? How and why did you become a sinner? So we both agree that we are totally sinful and in need of a savior. Um, that's not something that, that we disagree on. And so I don't think this is a, a dividing issue. If that's what you meant, I agree with you. But as far as free will, I actually think free will is the only logical answer that explains how God isn't the author of sin. If we have free will, we have the freedom either to love, obey, or on the other hand, hate and reject God. We have the ability to do that. But if God decreed exactly what you're going to do, then you lose that ability and you now have to appeal to some kind of uh, some kind of second-rate response like, oh, well, it's a mystery how it happened. Oh, well, he, he ordained it, but he, he, you know, you just do the word game. He decreed it. No, he ordained it. No, he, whatever. It, it, it all means the same thing. Um, so I think free will is the most logical answer for how sin came into the world um, and also why we freely choose to disobey God, even as believers. So, uh, and then just the last thing you added, you said, um, P.S., you may find this guy of interest on Twitter. Uh, is at Israel Anderson. He is hijacking Mike's work, that's Michael Heiser, and marrying it to Gnosticism. I found you on Naked Bible and figured you might want to look into it. I called him out and he tried to play the victim. Disgusting. Uh, I, I will check that out. Thank you for sending that over. I'll go ahead and probably call him out too uh, after I look at his work. And, it, and it's funny to me when somebody accuses Michael Heiser of, of being Gnostic because like the very point of Gnosticism is that it's secret knowledge uh, and that you can only have the secret knowledge if you're part of the club. Michael Heiser, even if you disagree with everything he's ever said, he shows every single step of how he arrives at a view to the point where it's like mind-numbing detail. Uh, so the fact that anyone would call him Gnostic just because they can't argue his views is pretty pathetic, but I, I will check that out. Um, I'll, I'll look at his his account. That would be interesting. Um, but all that to, to, to say, thank you for the question. I appreciate you sending out a, a well-thought-out response. Hopefully that makes sense to you. But the, the child damnation, um, the virgin birth in, um, in Jesus avoiding original sin, and just the, the concept of original sin, in my view, not being in the Bible, not having a single verse for it in the whole Old Testament, um, 
those are just a few of the reasons I, I now reject that view where I didn't used to reject that view, but um, hopefully that's been helpful for you. Thank you so much for sending that response. I'm looking forward to next time. Um, next question is actually a statement. Um, it's titled, Why Has the UND Taken a Far Right Turn? Uh, I used to really enjoy listening to the show because of its insights on the unseen realm. But for the past few months, the show has taken a decidedly far right turn. I cannot continue to listen to the show. I'm not interested in MAGA indoctrination. Uh, you have lost your direction. Well, first, thank you for sending an email and not just disappearing. I do appreciate that. Um, number one, I would ask you to reconsider. I would love to keep you as a listener. I mean, I can't control you, of course. Uh, and if, if whatever you would have heard is enough for you to, to turn away and go somewhere else and so be it, I'd love for you to continue listening. We're going to have a ton of Divine Council content coming out this year. Um, the second thing, though, is in the history of the show, I think right now in this moment is the first time I've ever said Trump's name. I don't think I've ever even said the word Donald Trump or President Trump or anything. Um, so I, it's not MAGA indoctrination and I'm not far right. Uh, I can only imagine that what you're referring to is the content I did on woke stuff. I've done episodes on critical theory. Uh, we, we did a couple trans episodes recently. And then I did the He Gets Us and showed where I think a lot of that comes from DEI. Um, so, I mean, maybe that's what you're referring to. I'm, I'm definitely not woke. So I... If, if that's what you mean, that's definitely true. But as as far as far right, I'm definitely not far right. Uh, I, in fact, last year, I did way more content than I would have liked to against Christian nationalism. Uh, and, and I will be voting for Trump, but I even have my issues with that. For example, he he's working pretty closely with Michael Flynn, who was a huge Gnostic Christian nationalist. So I have, I have my issues with that. I will vote for him because I think if the current regime continues, you're not going to have the freedom to send this email in a couple of years. Uh, but all that to say, this is not a, a Trump MAGA indoctrination show. Um, I don't know where, where that comes from. If you want to email further, I would love to know, um, I guess some more of what, what you think, but I don't, uh, yeah, I've never done that on this show. I'm definitely against the woke agenda. So whatever you want to call that is is fine, I guess. But this does give me an opportunity to say there are days where I'd rather not talk about things that are difficult. Okay, there, there are days where I'd rather not get negative feedback. I'd rather not. Every time I do an episode on critical theory or trans stuff or uh, or anything like that, I'm guaranteed to lose followers. Uh, like, 100% guaranteed. There are months where the followers I've lost have almost outweighed the followers I've gained because of topics like this. And I could just cower and sit back and say, well, let's let our nation be destroyed. Let's let the church be destroyed. Um, let's pretend I don't think the divine council is real. Let's pretend I think the woke agenda is just people being nice. I could do all that, but it would go against my conscience. And most ministries, I won't say most, but a lot of ministries do that. A lot of ministries, uh, they kind of just, they stay away from controversial things because you're going to lose donors. You're going to lose certain, certain followers and supporters. And, but I'm not that person. Uh, I'm the person who's going to talk about what I'm convicted of. And in this case, I, I think the woke agenda is one of the most dangerous poisons seeping into the church, the nation and the world. It's not just, uh, it's not just our nation. So yeah, there, there are days where I'd rather just talk about the fun stuff there are days where I'm tempted to say, well, if I just do these 10 topics in a row, I bet my followers will grow pretty big. Uh, if, if I look at months of certain episodes I've done and how it's grown to those months compared to others, 
but I think that's exactly what Satan would want me to do. And that's not what I'm interested in. Uh, I'm, I'm here for the people who are, who are searching and digging for truth. I'm here for the people who want to hear things, even if they're uncomfortable. Uh, I'm here for the people who want somewhere to go where it's like, Hey, this thing about the Bible has always bothered me, but it seems like no one will address it. I want that to be this show. Okay. I'm, I'm the universe next door. I'm not, I'm not in this universe. Uh, and so Sometimes people are going to be uncomfortable with that. Sometimes people are going to leave because of that. Um, but the only thing I can I can definitely disagree with besides the Trump thing is I haven't lost my direction because this has been the direction that I believe God has guided me this whole time. Uh, and if I'm strongly convicted about it, I have to talk about it. I can't just sit back and not do it. But with all that being said, if you want to email further, I'd be totally up for that. Um, and, and thank you for supporting the show so far. If you're leaving, then we'll miss you. But um, I hope you don't. Next question is titled, Man, Where Did He Come From? Uh, the theory is, from the war in heaven, a third of the angels were cast down to the earth. A third of the angels were led by Michael the archangel, and a third of the angels who did not fight are sent into the earth as mankind to make a choice for their eternal home. Is this scriptural? What is your take on the matter? And thanks for taking the time to respond. Well, thanks for sending this question in. Uh, this is actually a topic I find very interesting and often misleading. It's a popular concept, um, an idea to say that Satan fell and took a third of his angels with him. And there was this whole uh, battle in heaven before creation and so on. But this comes from fictional books. It doesn't come from the Bible. I will show you, uh, I will show you the verse that it, it, it is often alluded to um, in regard to this. So we'll go to Revelation 12. And, and before we do that, we've talked about this on the show before, but it's interesting. There actually is no origin story for demons given. The closest thing you have is the story of the Nephilim uh, in Genesis 6. Those are the the only time we see angels who sinned uh, or spiritual beings, sons of God who sinned. There's no other, there's no other specific instance given. Um, but in Revelation 12, this is where it often comes from. It says, then, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down in his angels with them. So there's where you see this battle in heaven. Uh, and then if we back up a little bit, going to verse um, verse 1, it says a great sign. Well, let's go to verse 4. It says its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Uh, and so this is where you get this concept of a third of the angels falling, going with Satan, uh, and being flung down to the earth. The problem is what is the context for this story? What is the context for this whole passage? The context is a birth of the Messiah. Okay, let's back up a little bit to verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten hordes and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. 
And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. The context of this passage is not pre-creation. It's not pre-fall or anything like that. The context for this passage is the birth of the Messiah, is the birth of Christ. Uh, We've covered this in another episode too, where I actually think this describes exactly what was in the sky when Jesus was born. It's very interesting. Um, But this this is describing the birth of the Messiah. It isn't describing something that happened before creation. So it isn't an origin story for demons. Um, It's debated, even if you're going to take stars here referring to angels, uh, which is, of course, highly debated, that still didn't happen pre-creation. It would still be be in reference to the birth of the Messiah, the woman representing kind of like, I think, a double meaning of Mary, but also Israel, that Israel is the one who brought about the Messiah, uh, Jesus Christ. So, this story is referring to the birth of the Messiah, and I think it's often misunderstood. And I, I don't know the views of everybody at the ministry that apologetics inc. on um, eschatology, and I don't think this is a dividing issue, but I do think oftentimes people are far too confident in their views on eschatology, especially when we consider that prophecy in Scripture is always understood in hindsight. Like this stuff is very complicated. It is very complex. It is filled with details and places that have to be patched together and, and, and sort of bridges that have to be made between this view and this view and this passage and that passage. There is a lot going on in regard to eschatology. And it seems just a little strange to me to think I can have it all figured out. I think that there are certain things we can understand, um, but I also think there are things that God left intentionally cryptic, intentionally difficult to to understand and to figure out because prophecy is always understood in hindsight. And I think that in regard to eschatology and end times, it'll be the same in the end times that it was for every other prophecy in the Bible, including the birth and the death of Christ, that they didn't understand it until hindsight. Um, so I hope that's helpful for you. I'll I'll, uh, I'll try to link that episode in the description below too, because it's very interesting. Uh, but thank you for your question. Uh, the next one is about slavery in the Bible. It says, I responded to the New Testament claims of slavery. Uh, you know Philemon and basically love everyone always and William Lir- Wilberforce, etc. But frankly, I just don't know how to answer slavery in the Old Testament. Um, so first of all, let me point you to a, a really good book on this as Paul Copan's uh, Is God a Moral Monster? He, he, he covers this in great detail. He does a very good job. And at the end of the day, there's a couple things to keep in mind. First of all, when we think of slavery today, we think of the African slave trade. And in fact, I th- th- this is one of the reasons why in the New Testament, the word doulos is often uh, translated into servant rather than slave because it makes people uncomfortable. And I don't agree with that. I think we should pick the best best translation, and I think that's meant to be a stronger word. But slavery in the Old Testament was much different than how we picture slavery today. So for example, when you think of the African slave trade, there was necessarily kidnapping involved. Well, according to Exodus, kidnapping is punishable by death. Um, 
there was a year of jubilee jubilee where on the seventh year slaves would be released if they wanted to uh, and if they wanted to stay oftentimes they would because it was the only way they could provide a life for themselves uh, so there there check out the book paul copans has got a moral monster there's a ton of reasons listed on the differences uh, between how we view modern slavery and what this was back then which was more of a form of indentured servitude but with that being said you're still going to think well why did they allow indentured servitude? Why didn't God just abolish the whole thing and do this and that and and make life better for them and provide more opportunities and so on? Well, the answer is that when God created the nation of Israel, he gave them the law and he gave them their ordinances and, and everything um, in a certain time period and in a certain time. He, like the Israelites weren't aliens. They weren't heaven on earth. They weren't like these people that just popped into existence. They were not only heavily influenced by the surrounding cultures, but in many ways they were part of those surrounding cultures. So for God to just come in and uproot everything uh, and totally change the way that everything in life is done, it's just not realistic. Uh, and so I think when God is working through this nation of Israel, through the law, things are progressively changing. Things are continually uh, progressively changing upward. And so I don't think God's purpose and his design for the law that he gave them uh, was that everything would now be perfect. I think it was like, hey, listen, you guys are sinners. You're still living uh, sinfully. He's not going to be okay with that. He's not going to be okay with sin. But he is going to find them where they are and give them the law. He, he didn't just take them and advance them like 10,000 years, 10, years forward. He found them where they were. He gave them the law where they were. And the law that Jesus fulfilled, uh, in my view and in many ways, was not, was not designed to work forever in every way. There are 613 commandments. So if you disagree with me, that's fine. But can you name more than like 20 of them, maybe? 613, and they were given to a specific people in a specific place. And in my view, Jesus has now fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish it, meaning he didn't come to break it or destroy it. He came to fulfill it. Uh, And we see that word fulfill, uh, I I believe the word is parazo or some variation of it. We see it roughly 20 times in the book of Matthew of Jesus fulfilling all of these different prophecies. Uh, So we know what that word means, but he fulfilled the law that was given to Israel. And we now no longer live under the law. And I think we're expected uh, to do better under the law of Christ than they were expected to do in Israel, which is why you see guys uh, like Wilberforce and the Wesleys and so on abolishing slavery as strong Christian believers. I I think that they've taken this and elevated it, and I think that's what God expects us to do. But we don't want to get into this like, oh, which slaveries were? Slavery wasn't that bad. It was, there's truth to some of that. But at the end of the day, God gave them the law in a specific place at a specific time. So you have to keep that in mind. Uh, Israel, were, it, was, it was not made up of, of aliens. Uh, the next question, what is the importance of the pre-existence of Christ? Uh, now, I would assume you either mean preeminence or more likely probably the pre-incarnation. So there's no pre-existence of Christ because he's always existed as God. But I would assume you're probably referring to what's the importance of Christ pre-incarnation, or in other words, what's the significance of Christ before he became man? Um, And there's a lot of significance there, if that's what you mean. I've done a a handful of episodes on this. One of them was titled, uh, Jesus is the 
or is Jesus the visible Yahweh, the visible God? In my view is that most of the times that God appears physically and visibly in the Old Testament, it actually is Christ appearing to people pre-incarnate. That he hasn't yet become man, but he still has always been the God who will appear physically um, before people. And you see a number of examples of this in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord, for example. I mean, it's a pretty common evangelical view to, to view the angel of the Lord as Christ. And that's my view, that the angel of the Lord is Christ. And so when the angel of the Lord appears to people physically, that's Jesus. So um, the importance is that he's always been here. And I think it's, I don't know if dangerous is the word, but I think it's unfortunate that we often view Jesus as coming into the picture 2,000 years ago and never existing or doing anything before then. Or even if we believe he existed, of course, Christians would say he existed before then, but like he just didn't do anything. He was the Old Testament's best kept secret. Uh, He was just kept behind a curtain or something like that. I, I don't believe that. I think the Trinity always works in unison. I think he's always been active. And one of the ways that he's always been active is that when you look at so many of the greatest and most significant events in Israel's history, Jesus is there. Whether it's the burning bush, you have the angel of the Lord. Whether it's uh, Jacob wrestling with God physically in Genesis. Whether it's Jesus standing at the top um, of the ziggurat that Jacob sees in Genesis 28. The Lord is standing there calling to Jacob. Whether it's when Samuel is called in 1 Samuel 3 and the Lord stands there and calls to Samuel. And at the end of the chapter, we see the word appeared to him many times. Uh, whether it's Genesis 15, when the word, Christ, appears to Abram and takes him outside. Um, more content coming on that too, by the way. Some very interesting stuff with that passage. But I believe that Jesus is the visible Yahweh. He is the image of the invisible God. And I don't think that that just started 2,000 years ago. So I'll link those description. <laughs> I'll link those episodes in the description uh, below so you can check those out. There's going to be like a dozen episodes down there. I'm sorry. Just listen to all of them. Um, but those will be down there. So check that out. But but thank you for your question. Assuming you meant pre, pre-incarnation um, of Christ. Uh, if you meant preeminence, the idea of preeminence is that he's greater than all. And that has a million implications, including that he is greater than all and created everything, uh, meaning that he himself is not created. He is God. So Check that out. I'll link it in the description. Uh, Next question is on morality. Um, I have a question about the basis of morality, a topic that comes up frequently in any debate about Christianity and atheism. That it does. Uh, I'm reaching out to various religious organizations to learn their response to the following issue. In my view, Christian morality appears to ultimately rely on subjective preferences. A person who believes in Jesus and Yahweh as a creator believes that this God has provided certain commands to humanity. But given this information, a believer still has a choice of how to behave and how to feel about it. What is their choice based on? Uh, From what I observe in Christian apologetics, the believer's choice, their moral code, is based on either A, the person fears punishment by God or desires to be rewarded by God, or B, Uh, The person just loves God and wants to do as God wishes. Or C, the person has a subjective preference for the idea that a person should be obedient to the being that created them. None of these motivations have an objective basis to compel behavior. Uh, In case A, which was the fear of punishment or wanting reward, the motive is is subjective and self-serving. In case B, 
uh, which is the person just loves God and wants to do as God wishes. Love for God is a subjective preference, just as one could say that an atheist's love for fellow humans is a subjective preference. In C, um, the idea that uh, a person has a preference for the idea that a person should be obedient to the being that created them. Um, so that's kind of like B without the love aspect, I guess. Uh, in KC, there is no objective reason to believe in that principle as opposed to the opposite principle that morality, morality a person does not owe total obedience to a being who created them. So my question is, if you think I've misrepresented the issue, then in what way does belief in the Christian concept of God give the believer an objective motivation to follow a particular set of rules and attitudes? In other words, why is it ultimately objective if morality is an atheistic worldview in an atheistic worldview is not. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Uh, I appreciate your time as well. I th- I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. I do appreciate the thought out response. So I will respond to what I think you're asking. It seems like you may be confusing objective morality with why somebody would follow that objective morality. Uh, and maybe I misunderstood your question and I could be wrong here too. So send me an email if so, uh, information at apologetics.org and let me know. But it seems like when I'm going through this, what your your question is, why would somebody follow that morality is is kind of what I'm getting. Because objective morality, the concept of it is there is no true right or wrong if God doesn't exist. All you would have is subjective preferences. But that's exactly what objective morality isn't by definition. So whether or not you believe in objective morality, it is the idea that there are things that are absolutely universally right and absolutely universally wrong, whether we like it or not. Um, so it seems that your the A, B, and C you listed was, uh, why would somebody follow this morality? Um, now, I, for number one, you put that a person fears punishment by God or wants a reward. Well, somebody may follow or not follow God based on that, but that's not the reasoning for objective morality. Um, now n- neither of those are the reason that I try to obey God. Um, you have to keep in mind that the law God gives isn't arbitrary. It isn't him just throwing out random commands and ideas. The law extends from the good that God is. So when we say God is good, we believe that the good is his very nature. It extends from his very nature. Uh, and so you, you may have heard, uh, of the Euthyphro dilemma, which was the idea of do the gods will it because it is good or do the gods will something um, and therefore that makes it good. So y- you have this idea presented in the Euthyphro dilemma um, that good is something apart from God either way because you have God willing something because it's good. Well, then you have good apart from God or um, you have the God or quote unquote, the gods willing something in whatever they will now becomes good seemingly arbitrarily. And again, you still have the standard of good apart from God, but it's a false dilemma because um, I think the best answer and William Lane Craig has done a ton of work on this is that the very nature of God is the good. It isn't a standard apart from him in what he reveals to us. He extends from his nature. So I think what you have here is what would be someone's motivation for following that? Well, I I think ultimately, because it's the right thing to do, and we're given a conscience. So scripture is very clear that God has written his law or his moral code 
on our hearts. He has knitted it into our hearts. So even if you are completely far from God, even if you haven't trusted in Christ, even if you haven't prayed in your whole life, you still have a sense of right and wrong. You're still created in his image and you're still given a conscience where you know something is right or wrong, which is why Romans 1 tells us that no one is without excuse. Um, Everything God has created has been clearly seen. We know he exists just by looking at nature. And we have this conscience that we know right from wrong, even when we don't know Christ. So that's another misconception is that an atheist can't know or do right from wrong. Um, In a spiritual sense, even our best deeds are dirty rags before God, if we don't know him and if we haven't been redeemed by him. Uh, But all that to say, an atheist can do quote unquote good things, depending on what you mean by that, because we all have a conscience. Um, But if I'm understanding you correctly, I think that there is a difference between why somebody would follow a moral code uh, in the moral code itself being objectively based in God as an eternal, uh, personal, and good being who has revealed his code, his law uh, to us. So I don't know if that's helpful. I hope it is if that's what you were asking. Um, but I would just I would just clear that up, the difference between the actual moral code and why somebody would uh, why somebody would follow it. So thank you for your question. Uh, thank you for all your questions. This has been fun, went by quick uh, for me at least, but make sure you send them in for next month, the last Friday of, Uh, the last Friday of March. Send them to information at apologetics.org. And also, don't forget next week, Tuesday night at 5 p.m., we'll be releasing our interview with a former psychic. And I'm interviewing her on Tuesday. So if you have questions about that or anything you've ever wondered, send it in right now. Don't wait. Send it in right when you hear this, if this is before Tuesday uh, at at 10 a.m. or so, because I'll ask those questions in the interview. But thank you all so much. Looking forward to that. Don't forget to hit follow, and otherwise we'll see you back here Tuesday night at 5 p.m. on the universe next door.